This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Hello and welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. I'm Joe Holden, Global Head of Investment Research and Consulting at Mercer, and joining me today are Nick White, Global Director of Strategic Research, and also Matt Scott, our Senior Strategic Research Consultant, two of the authors of our annual investments piece, Themes and Opportunities. Now, this looks at structural trends, emerging risks, and thinks about how they'll play out over the medium to long term. Now, our latest themes and opportunities paper is called An Age of Agility. So very simply, why? Yeah, sure. Because markets and economies are being transformed by so many forces at the moment. Investors simply need to be on their toes to navigate their way through it. We, When we refer to structural trends and emerging risks, we talk about it in the context of either one regime change which is one-off shifts in conditions to a new normal, super cycles, global supply, demand imbalances that can outlast market cycles, and three, multi-decade megatrends that are transforming economies over time. And the reality is that today, with higher inflation volatility, higher interest rates, greater geopolitical risk, tighter resource constraints, and the demands of the climate and nature transition, we have examples of all three of those, regime change, super cycles, and megatrends. It's important to understand how the different themes play out, how they interact with each other, because ultimately what we're trying to do is to identify strategies that are beneficiaries of these multiple trends at the same time, help investors with their agility, and ultimately identify these strong, robust performers for clients. Okay, so maybe let's start with inflation. First obvious question, you know, I thought that inflationary pressures were subsiding. So I'll take that one. I think I think cyclical pressures, yes, that that's subsiding. But I think stru- what what we term structural pressures remain. So if you think about some some of the things that we've been talking about a lot, inflation, volatility, geopolitical risk, these are things that had been subject to quite a lot of complacency. But the last time inflation really was unhinged was 1980. Incidentally, the year I was born, and we had right we, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we had we had a generation of investment professionals that didn't really believe that inflation could return. They thought it was a historical phenomenon. So it was seen as a function of employment, and models were built largely around the Phillips curve uh, that formalised this relationship between employment and inflation. They just weren't capable of predicting the return of inflation. So people had also, like on on the history side, they felt that. The triumph of Western liberal democracy was something that essentially ended history. And this was like totemized at the time by this book by Francis Fukuyama, The, the End of History. Um, so unfortunately, as you know, uh, Putin and Xi have sort of begged to, begged to differ with some of this thinking. So the, the, the point I'm trying to make 
is that received wisdom can change pretty quickly and often unexpectedly. So the pandemic response, along with a load of other factors, including resource constraints, conflict, this stalling of globalization, have actually revived inflation. And investors really need to be able to react to that in an agile way. So to understand, for example, that the equity bond negative correlation assumption that a lot of their portfolio modeling may have relied on is imperiled. And if if they haven't had a look at their strategy setting for a while, they, they probably should have now. And so if investors don't really have this agility baked in via their governance process, opportunities are disappearing faster than they ever have. Now, again, if we're thinking about inflation, obviously, we've had a policy response, and that's given us rising interest rates. And that probably leads me to a couple of questions. What are our thoughts on that? And how are we thinking about the opportunities that are presenting themselves as a result? Yeah, sure. Well, I I think the first and somewhat obvious takeaway is that higher rates have led to quite a flatter, efficient frontier than we've had really for quite some time. I think investors have typically felt the need to creep up the curve to really get the return that they needed in prior years. And in fact, actually, while extras were strong, that was fine. But actually, what this is, this shift is has clear implications for strategic asset allocation, in particular, in particular that equity bond mix, and whether you need to go up the curve to get the same kind of returns that you want as as an investor. The higher rates are also presenting more micro opportunities, particularly in credit. So, 2023 obviously saw a number of high profile bank failures, primarily due to asset liability mismatch, and as a result, the trend of bank withdrawal that we've seen for many years has continued with opportunities for non-bank lenders at attractive rates. Essentially, what it's done is shifted the power from from borrowers to lenders. In particular, we think of potentially lucrative opportunities in private credit, and this could perform for some time, possibly with those opportunities evolving across the risk spectrum over time as the economy works its way through waves of refinancing. Coming back to inflation as well, though, I would think the temptation for policymakers to allow inflation to run a little bit over target in order to reduce the real value of debt, as well as obviously the supply issues. It it means if inflation runs that little bit hot, then actually good old-fashioned tips or inflation-linked bonds could be a solid risk mitigator. So there's quite a few more opportunities in the bond area than, than there has been for really quite some time. Okay, so clearly globalization and I think you know particularly the addition of the Chinese to the global workforce after that period of cooperation in the 90s but also we have ex-communist countries coming in sort of after the fall of the Iron Curtain that all helped along kind of a pretty benign period of inflation for quite some time and if you think about what's happening at the moment we've got tensions in Donbass in the Taiwan Strait Gaza amongst others and all of that sort of uncertainty plus resource nationalisation seems to threaten what's been an engine for prosperity, you know, however disruptive it might have been in certain places. Do we see any opportunities coming out of all of that? So one, one, one of the key ideas at the moment is that this uncertainty, this background of higher inflation, volatility, dispersion between and within regions, normalisation of rates often at different paces may have created a positive environment for, for hedge funds. So it's it's difficult to pick out a particular type of hedge fund. And generally, we 
we we don't tend to suggest people do. History has shown us that the best way to proceed with hedge funds is to have a diversified program with many uncorrelated strategies. But we have seen a really broad set of positive indicators across various sub-asset classes, including things like trend, global macro, capital structure arbitrage, just to name a few examples. So coupled with the lowering of fees that we have seen with a lot of strategies, it's potentially time for investors to look at hedge funds again, albeit it's it's best to to, to do it in a way where you are running that program rather than just dipping dipping one's toe in, so to speak. And maybe a side mention of gold there, which we recognise has proved to be quite a polarising asset, but there's, it, it is a natural fear asset, but it is it has also proven to be a destination for central banks looking to diversify their reserves away from US dollar assets. And we've seen historic buying of gold by central banks in recent periods, particularly emerging market central banks. We'd argue this is just a financial form of friendshoring, which, of course, is a term more commonly used in the context of realignment of supply chains and especially regards to energy security. But there's certainly forces that we've seen today. I just want to pick up on that energy security point. So, Matt, I know that you particularly have been looking at energy transition. Do you want to share any insights into what investors should be thinking about right now? Yeah, so... We know that electric vehicles are really taking off, and the reason is because they have around half of the lifetime emissions of internal combustion vehicles. One of the issues is that we know that electric vehicles also use multiple times the amount of critical minerals in their construction than the than the ICE vehicles, particularly in regards to the batteries. We also know that in terms of energy security, uh, renewables offer a potential for decentralization of energy, but they're also incredibly resource hungry. So wind power related demand for rare earth elements, for example, it, it is expected to have tripled over the decade to 2030. And they're also base metal hungry. So one of our key themes for a while now is to invest in natural resources stocks, but particularly the ones that have this strong connection to the sustainability-related demand for critical minerals, which we think there's good possibility that it will kick off a commodity super cycle and, you know, what they're referring to as uh, greenflation. There is clearly, though, a much wider energy transition picture that needs to extend beyond wind and solar and EVs to also look at heavy industry and heavy transport, these so-called hard, harder to bait sectors. So inevitably, we've started to look at things like hydrogen, there's potential that fusion, you know, stuff that really would have been quite Star Trek-y a while back to, to take off a bit more now. So there's a number of ways that you, you can play this space as an investor. There's the obvious and well-established opportunity set in transition aware infrastructures and there are overarching energy transition themed funds which also invest in some of the solutions expected to drive the next wave of innovation. So coupled with the need for infrastructure build to focus increasingly on adaptation strategies there's reason to believe that recent spikes in commodity prices may be more than blips and rather part part of a broader commodity supercycle. 
Nick, I just want to carry on that broader transition theme. Now, I know that you and the team have done a lot of work on trying to sort of broaden the investor concept of transition. Can you maybe just tell the listeners a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we tend to just refer to a broad term of resource transition, and this encapsulates the energy transition. It broadens, it looks across two layers of energy transition, layer one, which is in full flow, which is EVs and renewables. Layer two is all about those hard to abate sectors where we're going to need a totally different technology in order to to solve it. You need a transition in agriculture. So really what this means is the broader resource transitions we refer to it is talking about energy, its food, its emissions, its nature. And all of this, it's in the context of a population that could exceed 10 billion by 2050, bringing with it a burgeoning and consuming middle class. Very simply, we will need much more from much less, which means rapid expansion of the circular economy in the background, which is the economy that breaks the linear take-make-waste model that has really been modus operandi for the industrial period of, of human history. Related to this, there's a variety of research papers that are forthcoming in this area, a whole series of papers on natural capital. We're going to look at the future of food. And I think a particular interest is the transition in agriculture that we're seeing today which is really a mixture of going back in time and forward in time. So using regenerative agriculture techniques that were much more common, arguably even 100 years ago, but at the same time using super high tech to increase efficiency with regard to water and fertilizer usage. It is a particularly fascinating area. And uh, as well as agriculture, forestry is one that I really can talk the, the hind legs of a, of a donkey off about. So I, these are both really strong asset classes, agriculture and forestry, when you take time to look at the track records, particularly with forest, with forestry, people tend to make assumptions it's always low returning. Actually, in previously in periods of high interest rates, high inflation, it, it has actually provided uh, pretty strong returns, good, you know, good risk adjusted returns at you know, a nice skew of returns, very, very few down years. We know that it's it's climate positive, which is something that it's important for people at the moment, this ability to uh, sequestrate carbon. If you do it in the right way, you, you can make it positive for, for biodiversity. And it can it can also take advantage of trends that are happening in building materials. So we can't just carry on w- with a model where there's so many more people on on the planet, and we we keep on essentially extracting uh, construction materials. The building materials of the future are going to rely a lot more on on renewable ma- materials uh, such as timber. And you you see really interesting products starting to take off a lot more now. Things like uh, cross laminated timber, for example, and, and glue laminated timber. So like I said, <laughs> could go on on about it forever. But I think we're we're doing some more research in, in into forestry now. It's an it's an area that we're pretty excited about. <laughs> well, thanks, Matt. And in the nicest possible way, thank you for not talking nine legs off a donkey. Um, but it is really good to hear you excited. And you indeed, there is a lot that's keeping us enthused at the moment. I think, you know, we're all feeling as though this age of agility theme is going to give us an awful lot to talk about over the next few months or so. 
So thank you to both of you for joining me today and thank you to you for listening. Um, you can read the full report that the guys have referenced today using the link in the podcast description. But also, you know, if you like what you've heard today, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast series for more. And if you want to discuss anything in particular that we've talked about today, you can either reach out to your local or your usual Mercer representative. Or indeed, please feel free to email us at ctci at mercer.com. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.